Not long after the signal at 99.4 MHz, commonly known as KJZZ, went quiet, a new broadcast began. This one was different, and yet the same, and to the scientists gathered around their equipment to the confused homeowner wondering when this Mrs. McLavin show would end and the new jockstrap song would come on, everyone knew something had changed. This is what they heard. Once I was a mother. I suppose I'll always be a mother, but that series of improbable boating accidents peeled that identity for me like so many layers of old paint. Then I became a wanderer, and maybe still am. But at the moment, I'm a hoistman. Frank and I fall into the pattern that I learn is natural for the men and women of the hoist. We sleep during the day at truck stops and in back rooms of certain bars. We drive the highways in twilight and arrive on the job as the moon swells over the horizon. My transition from odd hanger-on to apprentice to master hoistman is gradual and unmarked. There are no lessons, there is no instruction. We work and I improve. But one day, after Frank has collected the money from our latest weeping client and joins me on the bench seat of the truck, he reaches behind the seat and pulls out a worn but clean blue jumpsuit. He tells me, the radio dispatcher wants us to hoist an elderly Guernsey over in Pennsylvania. I nod and take my new uniform. On the job, we see many strange things. A roadside museum asks us to lift Hitler's typewriter out of its display case. At the Wax Horse Museum, we're called in to remove the 4,000-pound mound that remains after the AC broke down in the worst horses exhibit. On another occasion, we arrive at a rambling Victorian home and spot an enormous cube draped in black velvet, lit with floodlights. We silently agree that this is bad news and take our leave. One trip took us through a lost, swampy district of northern Louisiana, where we see a man walking along the side of the road in red long underwear, the kind with a butt flap. He's wearing horns and carrying a pitchfork. We're hours from the nearest town. Frank mutters that he's sick of that fucking guy. Wherever we drive, I'm careful to keep the radio turned off. Instead, I gather a collection of classic rock cassette tapes. I loathe Thin Lizzy's jailbreak, but I suppose I prefer it to whatever might come out of the radio. Once, while driving across the Great Plains on a two-lane highway flanked by countless miles of BFRA industrial farms, I spot something like a storm on the twilight horizon. There are no towering clouds, just a kind of low, dusty swirl. The road runs at a safe distance from the swirling dust, but without realizing it, I start to angle the truck off the road toward it. Frank grabs the wheel. He tells me to keep my eyes on the road when I see something like that. Much of what we encounter is terrible, but the work has an unearthly beauty to it all the same. I learn that this is the way of the hoistman. One night, as Frank and I are finishing an unremarkable lift, the radio crackles and orders us a few miles south to hoist an unjust quantity of oranges. 
It's late, but we go anyway, and within a few minutes I'm on top of the crates and have secured the winch arm. Frank starts the winch with me still on top, and as he maneuvers the load around, I'm taken briefly above the trees. We've lost track of time, and a heavy, yellow-orange sun is laying across the hilly horizon. I can feel its gentle warmth on my face. The air up here is cool and clean, like drinking cold water after a hot salad. And then I'm on the ground again, and Frank seems to understand what I've seen, and I wonder if he'd even arranged it somehow. Whenever possible, we stop at the hoist bar, the seat of all hoisting, and the birthplace of my new vocation. There, under the dim light of dirty incandescent bulbs and CRT televisions playing buggy racing, we quietly raise glasses with our fellow hoistmen. It isn't a jovial affair, exactly. More of the quiet resilience to sadness enforced by the smell of old liquor and cheap beer. The brothers and sisters of the hoist know that they will never win, but they are certain to never lose. Without realizing it, I know I belong here among them. On this night, we pull up to the hoist bar, but Frank doesn't come in with me. He says he has to deal with something else. The door to the bar has a large diamond of yellow, uneven glass fixed in it, and through it I catch sight of Frank slipping down a side alley. I know that alley. The other hoistmen don't like to talk about it, but I've already been warned to never go there, no matter how desperate I become. I enter the bar, weaving past the crowded tables and hunched figures, past the bar, and past all the faded photographs of the hoistmen who have come before. I feel their eyes on me. There's a well-worn path in the old wooden floor that leads to the toilet. I stray from the trail and out the back door. The bricks are wet out behind the bar, and the alley is uneven cobblestone. I hear Frank speaking in hushed tones on the other side of a half-collapsed wooden fence. Crouching down, hoping to answer him I'm wrong, I shuffle over until I can see my companion. He looks afraid, his body in shadow but face pale and terrified, like a sickly November moon. He's pleading with someone. Three people. The two big ones are clearly the muscle, and my heart sinks when I realize they're wearing huge jackal heads. The little man standing between them is chastising Frank in a high-pitched, breathy screech, like an angry owl. I can't see the little man fully, but in the shadows I can make out an immense pyramid perched on top of his head. We had a deal, Francis. You did a lot of favors, and now it's time for you to do something for us. The little man somehow manages to sound frantic and calm at the same time. Frank doesn't seem calm at all. He says he needs more jobs, more time. Oh, you'll get plenty of jobs, Francis, right after you deliver Mrs. McClavin. Frank doesn't say anything. You did a good job collecting her and keeping her safe. You really came through for us, Francis. You were the only one that answered our call back when she took Chipper off the air. But you can't just walk away, Francis. The little man's voice is getting louder, coming toward me. I slide deeper into the shadows as he and one of the jackals glide past. We're not finished with you, Francis, chuckles the little man next to my head. They get into a hulking black Cadillac hearse parked in the alley, and its engine turns over with a horrible hum. I stare at the golden pyramids over the headlights and its vanity plate that reads, Ra Forever. They sit there for a long time while the other jackal works over Frank in the alley. It's starting to rain. I'm on the bar stool. A puddle of water has gathered around me. The pint of Fritz beer in front of me was fresh out of the hose when the bartender gave it to me, but it's warm and flat now. It's clear and yellow amber, but to me it's as murky and lifeless as the lake. Frank sits down without a word, as usual. I glance at his face. He looks like hell. The jackal wasn't kind to him. He nods at me. I stare at him. 
He knows. Tell me what they want, I say evenly. He glances down, shamed. I hate seeing him like this, but I don't care anymore. He shakes his head. Fine. I jump up from my stool, knocking it over, and grab him by the lapels of his coveralls. My heavy boots don't slip in the puddle of rainwater. I think I see a face down there in the water, but I'm looking at Frank in the eye as I throw him down on the bar. What do they want with me? I snarl at Frank. Where do they want you to take me? He shakes his head again. I don't have a choice. What do they want? I shout. What do the Sons of Ra want with me? I've said the name. I've implicated him in front of the hoistmen. I've revealed him as a traitor. Everyone is staring at us. They are searing this moment into their memory because I have killed Frank. He'll never be allowed here again. They'll treat him like a dead relative, one to be honored, remembered, and venerated, but never spoken to or acknowledged. Like a ghost, he'll leave his truck out front of the garage to be repaired and pick it up afterwards. He'll take his meals where he can, collecting the bottles of Fritz and soggy tuna sandwiches that hoistmen leave out for people like him. I remind myself that he's done this to himself. I've just finished the job. Frank's eyes are shut tight. I'm disgusted to see that tears are hanging there. Jerkily, he reaches into his jacket and pulls out an old cell phone that he presses into my hand. I whirl around. By right, I can take his hoist truck, but I won't do that. I need a truck, I announce. Someone tosses me their keys. I snatch them out of the air and exit the bar. I don't need to turn around to know what will happen next. The bartender will give Frank a fresh beer, a plate of lukewarm meatloaf with ketchup crust, and a slice of chocolate cake. Someone will drop a Susan B. Anthony into the jukebox. Frank will name a song, and it will be played for him. He can take as long as he wants to finish his last meal. I don't look at the cell phone until I've locked myself in the cab of the musty old truck I've been given. I power on its simple green and black screen. It doesn't ring, but after a few moments I see that a voicemail has been left from a number that looks familiar. I hold it to my ear. It's Dusty, my husband. Hello there, and namaste. I'm surprised your voicemail box is still working. I've left quite a few messages, so figured you just weren't checking them, they were all building up, so maybe there is hope after all. You know, I pride myself on a, say, faint pessimism with just a dash of hope. But we should talk, Miss McLavin. <laughs> it's funny, I actually don't know what to call you other than that anymore. It's been three years since you've been hoisting. Three years. Most hoistmen don't even live to be that old. Three years old. Saw a toddler hoister once. Makes sense. Usually only live to be three. But let's put that aside. I've been uh, thinking about going to this fight this weekend with a friend of mine. He, uh, he keeps talking about it, and I think it'd be nice to see you there. Um, I just feel like it's something that could bring us together closer. If there is still something left there, I'm not naive. I'm just distant, ambivalent. You know, good old Dusty. But, uh, you know, I've just been going through all of our rooms and looking at our belongings, and uh, we, uh, we're missing some of our children's teeth, you know? And I should clarify, it's just our baby's children's teeth. Baby, children, children baby's teeth, you know? Nothing creepy, just the baby teeth. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, just how it makes me feel, and I can almost have a, a faint smell of mortality when I look at them. And it makes me smile when I think of you, which is be nice to have you around the place to smile at our baby teeth with me. You know, 
I always thought your hair was kind of like a, a butter roll, you know, a garlic roll. We used to call them rolls, but I'm sure you remember still. But it was just as majestic, smooth, and shiny as a butter roll. That faint smell of garlic that you would just bring into every room with such machismo as well. I need that machismo back in my life sometimes, I think. And, uh, yeah, if you're thinking about me, I'd say I'm looking pretty good, a little taut. Maybe I've slimmed down a little more. Uh, but I feel like my true perfect self is skeletal. Maybe there's some sound integrity to that structure. I mean, I don't want to put anything on us, really. You know, I don't want to say wife or husband or Mr. and Mrs. McLavin or even girlfriend or boyfriend. Not that I've been dating around, and if I tried, I'd probably be where I am right now still. But, you know, that's between me and you. And, uh, copper bracelets. That's, oof. Not to get too excited, but that's what I've been really into. I don't think I would have had time for a relationship with my interests that I've been putting into copper bracelets. Uh, mainly copper tennis bracelets. They kind of have a nice sporty look to them, and you could wear something white and with shorts. Hopefully another pair of white shorts. You wouldn't want to do white and tan. Look gauche. Gauche. That was a word you liked. Gauche girls. But, uh, I have lost a considerable amount of money on copper bracelets, but I feel like it's an investment that's going to get me closer to that, that true self, uh, a fighting self, almost. One that can finally stand up and say, no, that is too many snack packs, you shouldn't eat that many. If only we had hadn't lost just good old do word to the snack packs. We could have said something. And those, uh, this might be a little off topic, but those Bible kids were outside again, causing just a real shitstorm wherever they were going, and I felt that true self, that, that fighter self come into me, and I said, hey, hey Bible kids, why don't, you, why don't you go skateboard? But then they could turn into skateboard kids, and I've heard about those neighborhoods. Sometimes you just don't know how to win in this world. And I've never thought I'd say senses like that without you around, but I, I found myself but nonetheless, I stood up to these Bible kids. Maybe I'll make them into skateboard kids. Maybe that's what we need. But they started beating me with their Bibles, and I forgot how heavy and hard they are. I fell to the ground, and I just laid there. They beat me for what felt like hours. Maybe it was hours. And I, I didn't think I could take the pain anymore. And when I stood up, my my lying pose, I'd, I'd taken no pain. I'd taken no, no damage, no inflection of any type of physical altercations. Was I truly finding my true self? Uh, or the kids just got bored and they're really weak? I mean, <laughs> that's why the skateboard kids kind of always take over in the Bible kid neighborhoods. Just simple logistics. Logistics, that used to be our word. we talk about where things would go and where things wouldn't go. And that long, grolly hair just flowing all around. Well... Your voicemail probably cut me off about three minutes ago, but sometimes it just feels good to talk. If you want to call me back and, you know, just see what happens, open up a few bottles of wonk wine and just see where it takes us, whatever state you might be hoisting in. Sometimes I look at the objects that could be hoisted and I think to myself, you always were stronger than me. You were always truly a hoistman. And maybe I wanted to be a hoistman. But that's not how you get to be your true self. So the Bible beats we take.
and the Bible beats we don't take that make us who we are. I've taken a lot of Bible beats. Hello? Do I press... I, I think I press 3 to leave another message if I want. I mean, not that the phone would answer back. That would be crazy. I'm not crazy. But I think I would press 3 right now. I'm gonna... I'm gonna try that. Keep it real. Keep it sleazy. Miss McLavin. This episode of Brian Weekly was written and performed by Max Flower Dome Eddy, Kathy My Hot Son is a Mid-Century Chair Fisher, Brandon Benevolent Employer Kirkman, with music by Michael Dogfriend Arthur. Do you need something lifted? Hoisted? Then be sure to call an officially licensed hoistman. While hoisting looks easy, it's an ancient art practiced and refined for over 4,000 years. It's humanity's second oldest profession and not something to be left to amateurs. When you hire a hoistman, ask to see his affiliation card, check the soles of his shoes, feel his hands for the correct calluses, and look into his eyes to see if he's been crying. If he doesn't have an affiliation card, wears boat shoes, has the wrong calluses, and hasn't cried in the last few hours, you can bet you're dealing with a scab. For more useful information on labor laws, be sure to rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, at Brian Weekly.